All right. Well, for some of you, you might be sitting to your new best friend, so you better get to know him. Uh, you guys can turn your Bibles to James chapter 4. We're going to continue on. We are reaching the end of our series together. We have three more Sundays, including this one, as a collective group. Now, you guys will be again together once the, the current 7th graders are in high school. Uh, you guys will be together again. But as this 7th, 8th grade group only, this is, uh, we've got three more Sundays. And so we're going to be finishing the book of James in these three Sundays. And we're going to be looking at a message this morning entitled, You Know Better. All right, You Know Better. Now, as you guys grow and mature in your lives, you are now being held more personally accountable for what you do or don't do. I doubt many of you were in trouble as a two-year-old for not cleaning your room uh, or, or you got grounded for a week with, uh, you know, uh, as you grow, you gain more personal accountability. Now you can't say, I'm only two because you're not two, right? You're older. And as you grow, I'm sure that all of us have heard that that phrase from mom or dad, you know better. I know for me, this, this phrase, that's why I have it in quotations, because I believe it's to be a phrase. Uh, I have this phrase that rings in my head of, of what my parents would tell me, that if I didn't do something that I should have done, or I did something that I also shouldn't have done, uh, they would say something along the lines of, you know better. When why did I know better? Well, because my parents taught me the expectations, my parents had taught me a different way, and I'm sure uh, this might have been something that your parents actually told you today, right? You, uh, you didn't wake up in time for church or whatever, um, or you hit your sister, or you, uh, you, know, you left the kitchen a mess after you made breakfast, and so your mom or dad says something along the lines of, you know better. However, oftentimes, knowledge of something doesn't always translate into action. But the expectation for you is going to increase as your capacity to understand increases. Meaning that as you get older, that idea of knowing better or your personal accountability is going to increase. Right now, you have a certain expectation regarding your age and regarding your understanding. But as you get older, and more mature, that increases. Now, the problem for a lot of people that become adults is though they mature physically, they don't mature in other ways. And so though the accountability increases uh, and their, their, their knowledge, they, they know what to do, sometimes they never actually mature inwardly. And that's always a recipe for disaster. And in a similar way, as you mature in your walk with the Lord, you are held more and more personally accountable for what you do or don't do. And this is not a bad thing. This is a good thing in our lives that as we allow, if we can allow God to work in our lives. You see, through every Bible study that we hear, we are held now accountable to do that Bible study. Why? Because the increase of knowledge increases our personal responsibility. We, be, we can be given bigger responsibilities for the kingdom of God, have eternal impact. But at the same time, uh, the, the consequences uh, for what we do or do not do also increases. Now, 
For the believer, it's not for punishment. You see, because of what Jesus did, you and I will never punish for something we do wrong or something that we didn't do that we should have done. But there is a loss of rewards for us. And so this is going to kind of be the topic of, of the day, uh, of, of this idea of personal accountability. You might want to write that down. Do your best, because accountability is a long word, but I think you can do it. Accountability. So two words into one, personal accountability. That's the topic for the day. Now, this is kind of what James gets into within this next section of scripture. If you guys were with us last week, then uh, you can remember how uh, Tate had taught us uh, about the lust of the flesh. Remember, he mentioned the, the lust of the flesh and the lust of eyes, the pride of lo- uh, life. And he talked about how uh, the spirit, right, wars against the flesh. And, and sometimes we do things that we shouldn't do and we do things that we don't want to do. Um, but yet within all that, within this really real reality of us dwelling with sinful bodies that we still have, though our spirit might be renewed, how you and I are to draw near to God. And that's the promise, that, that even in our sin, that we can draw near to God in humble repentance. And God says, if you draw near to me in that way, then I'll draw near to you. And so that was the topic of last week. But what we're going to see James kind of get into this week is he's going to bring some clarity of what he was talking about. You know, Tate talked a lot about just the, the overall general concept of, of the sinful flesh, right? Uh, he, he gave some different illustrations and some stories to, to understand that. But now, what were those things that James was, why did James have to write this in the first place, right? Because though we're reading this letter 2,000 years later, there were specific people who were dealing with specific sins that he was writing to, hey, you need to draw near to God. You need to humble yourself and God will lift you up. But what were those things, what were those sins that James was writing about? Well, he's going to give instruction in this area for the sake of clarity. And so for you and I who are reading this 2,000 years later, right? James did not have you in mind or me in mind when he wrote this. However, we can learn from what they did that we might live our lives to please the Lord. And so we're going to be talking about different sins today, but I believe they are written for our learning as a way of knowing, okay, this is the goal. This is what we ought not to do, and this is what we ought to do. So let's read James chapter 4. We'll start in verse 11. And read down to actually James chapter 5, verse 6. It's kind of this whole section of scripture. Remember that the chapters and the verses are not inspired by God. Like when James wrote the letter of James, he didn't put like, oh, chapter 5 and verse 1. Uh, That came later. Now, they're very helpful to us. They're a tool. But sometimes within a topic, the topic can extend into different chapters. And so so that's why we're going all the way to verse 6 today in chapter 5. All right? Make sense? All right, you guys good? All right, look with me in your Bibles. We'll read and then we'll pray for God's revelation to us. He says here, verse 11, do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. 
But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge another? Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance on all such boasting is evil. Verse 17, therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Chapter 5, verse 1, come now you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath, or the Lord of hosts is what it really says, the Lord of heaven's armies. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just, and he does not resist you. Let's pray. God, as we come to this portion of scripture, uh, we pray that you would give us clarity of mind, that you would teach us what it means. And God, then you would, you would have the word of God look into, Lord, the deep parts of who we are and see where we match up and see where we land. And Lord, we uh, ask for your revelation today that we might have our eyes opened and our hearts changed. And so we love you and pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said... Amen. So this is a big section, right? What we just read, there's kind of these different topics that James addresses. And so uh, it is important that we have a strategic way uh, to approach this and, and that we might understand what is being said. And I think one of the, the connectors and keys to understanding this passage is understanding verse 17. Look at that last verse of James chapter four, it says verse 17 there. And there's kind of this therefore, there's this connection, there's this uh, plan of action. And he says there, therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Let me give you a couple translations that you might uh, be able to understand it better. Romans 3.20 says, for by the law is the knowledge. That's not what I'm looking at. There you go. Sorry about that. Uh, NASB version says, therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. That's just a, a way a different translation puts it. The NLT puts it, remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. If you ever have a hard time understanding a verse, sometimes other translations can, can kind of give even further clarity. Now, what I want you to notice about this verse is in verse 17, in the New King James Version, hopefully what you have in front of you, the words to him are talked about twice, to him. Now, if you're a girl, you could put her in there. It's to a person, to him, to her. What's, what's he getting at? That this is something that is personal. And you might want to note that down. Verse 17 is something that is personal. And... 
not to say that there are only sins that are personal, right? There is general truth that God gives that he says murder is sin, right? Lying is sin. And that is true for everyone. But there are, there, there are some areas that, that something might be personally sinful, different than it might be for someone else. Kind of like what we talked about in the beginning, right? What might be sinful for you might be different. It's not going to be sinful for a child who is under the age of five to do or not do. It might be different regarding someone's, what? Personal knowledge of something. And what verse 17 gives us, it gives us, it cancels the excuse of I didn't know for those who have heard the word of God. You know, we've all used that excuse in our life before, right? Whether it's with mom and dad, whether it's at school, whether it's here, oh, I, I didn't know. Well, what verse 17 does is it takes away the, the idea of I didn't know. Because what we have here is a connection. In verse 17, you can either look on the screens for the other versions or look in your Bible. There's a connection between what someone knows and what someone is accountable to. Right? He says, to him who knows to do good and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. So if you are taking notes, you want to note down a connection between knowledge and accountability. Because one's personal knowledge of something brings personal accountability to that thing. So personal knowledge of a law brings personal accountability to the law, right? For example, if I were to tell you right now that it's against the rules and the law of this room for you to sit down in a chair, all of you, right, someone, some of you stand up. Uh, that's very good, very obedient, love it. Um, then all of you would be breaking that. But, but what you should say is you say, Joel, I, you never told us that. Like there was no sign. It wasn't in the announcements. And so you are then not guilty of that law in the sense like, okay, you're, you're guilty, but you're not held accountable to it because of a lack of knowledge. Does that make sense? Where you would say, no, I, I didn't know. You even told us that we should sit in chairs. So, I don't know. so the personal knowledge of a rule, of a law, brings then personal accountability to that law, right? And so that's why we have in Scripture, uh, in Romans 3.20 and Romans 7.7, 7, that Paul would say that the purpose of the law is for the knowledge of sin. Meaning it is by the word of God that we know what God's laws are. Now, in, in we, there's another witness to this as well, and it's an internal witness. God's given us morality in the hearts of man. Uh, there's something in us that knows right and wrong. Uh, it's called right, the conscience, and it's designed by God. But additional to that is the word of God and the commandments of God. And so because you know the law of God, you are accountable to the law of God. The, the place where people get confused at is, is, and this is where Paul brings clarity, is some people look at God's laws as something in order to save them. They say, well, if I can just keep them, then I can be saved by them. But we all know that we can't keep them, right? And so the purpose, why did God even give these commandments in the first place? He knew we couldn't keep them. God says it was to show you 
that you've broken them. It's to give you a personal accountability that you might recognize, oh, shoot, I sinned and I need a savior. It's all within the plan of redemption. But this concept of us knowing something and so then are we accountable to it is very important for us to get. Peter would say this about knowing. He would say, it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. This is a big statement. He says, it would actually be better for someone never to hear the gospel than to reject the gospel and stand before God and say, God, I heard it. I heard what you have required and asked, and I rejected it. It would have been better for them never to hear. Why? Because in God's view and the way that he handles things, that his judgments and and the way that he deals with people is based upon someone's personal knowledge. And this is important for us to get. Pastor Harry Ironside, he was a pastor, he's long gone, uh, but he was a uh, Bible commentator, and he said this, don't you like that word, Ironside? Like, that'd be a really cool last name, but uh, sin is any want of conformity to the will of God. When he makes known that will, what he wants, our responsibility is to act accordingly. Otherwise, we miss the mark and incur the divine displeasure. And notice this last sentence, everyone look on the screen. The more clearly God has revealed his mind, and the better we understand it, the greater is our responsibility. I want you to understand that every Bible study you hear, every time God's word is studied by you, whether passively or actively, the accountability to live and do that Bible study increases. Now, some would say, oh man, then I ain't never coming to church again. You mean I'm held accountable every time? Now, the problem with that type of thinking is it's clear that there's something in between you and your relationship with the Lord. Because if you are actively pursuing the Lord, then hearing the Bible study, you have every intention of doing the Bible study. You know you're not perfect, but you know God's power is going to empower you to live a life for him. And so that responsibility is not something you shy away from. It's something that you embrace. And it's something we should embrace. But in this kind of concept of of you knowing better and this knowledge and accountability, is that making sense? We need to understand the two types of categories uh, of sin. You can put sin in two basic categories, okay? Uh, The sin of commission and the sin of omission. Have you guys ever heard of these two before? Raise your hand if you've ever heard of these two. Okay. Only a handful of you. It is vitally important that you and I as followers of Jesus Christ understand the difference and understand the categories. And they're rather simple. Right? The sin of commission, think about the word to commit something, to commit a crime, right? Is to do something you know is wrong. That's like this, and actively like, I knew this was wrong to lie, but I lied anyway. The sin of omission is a little bit different. And it's one of those that are a little more um, kind of on the down low. Uh, We don't necessarily think of this one as often. Sometimes we only think of sin as the sin of commission. I just need to not do wrong. And God says, no, it's so much more than that. 
The sin of omission is to not do something you know is right. Think about that word omit. Have you guys ever heard that word before? So, for example, this word omit might come up if you're writing a paper and you omit out of your paper the footnotes, like kind of the notes at the end, like you, you're supposed to cite your sources. Hopefully you guys are doing something along those lines at this age. All right, you write a paper, and if you cite something, if you put a source, you're supposed to add your footnotes, right? And if you don't, if you just write your paper and don't add where you got your content from, then your, then your teacher will write on your paper. They'll dock you, and they'll say, for the reason that you omitted the footnotes, right? You omitted to cite the sources, meaning you did not put them in. That's what the word omit means. It means to have a lack of. And so the sin of omission is to not do something you know is right. And, and these two categories are important for us to understand because you might say, well, I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm, I'm not like, you know, out lying and murdering and doing drugs. I'm not doing anything wrong, but you're only looking at half the equation. You see, sin is not just about not doing something or uh, about doing something wrong, but what are you doing that is good? See, God's given us instructions, not just regarding. It's a shame when a believer only thinks about what they shouldn't do. See, God's called you to so much more. God says he has plans and good works prepared for you. When God says, I've created you for good works, he doesn't say, I've created you to just stay away from bad works. No, God says, I've got good stuff. And when we omit that in our life, we sin. Now, why are we talking about this today? Well, because in our passage that we just read, there's three different sections and three different sins are talked about. The sins that they were dealing with to whom the audience was, the original audience, a couple thousand years ago. And what we're going to see in this is we're going to see two clear sins of commission. It's like, yeah, you did that. That's wrong. And so James is kind of going to tell us, hey, don't do that. But then there's going to be one that's a sin of omission, where it wasn't that they were outright sinning in the sense of uh, obviousness, but that there was sin because they failed to do something. Okay, so first, the first sin that is mentioned is in verse 11 and 12. And we're going to go through these quickly and kind of spend a little bit more on the last one. So this is the first sin of commission that is mentioned. And it's the sin of acting as a judge towards other believers. We read this a moment ago, but this is directly following, remember what we learned about last week, about uh, a repenting of sin. And this is one of the specific sins that James wants to make clear for them to stay away from. Do not speak evil of one another. So in this section, he just lays it very clear. That's what I like about James is there's not a lot of things too foggy. He makes it, he says, hey, don't speak evil of one another, brethren. He says, he who speaks evil of a brother judges his brother. Now, when he's saying the terms brethren and brother, okay, he's not just speaking about, he's not speaking about blood family. He's speaking about, of course, the family of God. He says, don't speak evil of your brothers and sisters in Christ. What does that mean? Well, it means to slander someone. It means to attack someone's name and reputation and to speak against them. 
Now, this doesn't mean that you and I are not to call out evil, right? The Bible says that if someone did something, that we're to go to them first personally and, and talk about uh, what they did and how that was wrong, we're to do that. That's what Jesus said. He said, hey, before you go do that, make sure you don't have a plank in your own eye uh, and trying to get the speck out of your brother's eye. But he does say, hey, go and help him get the speck out of his eye. Some people look at that and say, oh, well, that's just their life. I'm not going to be involved. Now, that's different than what we're talking about today. When he says don't speak evil of one another, it's something that we can often do. Behind someone's back, we can gossip in a way that's slanderous. Everyone say slanderous. It's kind of a fun word to say, but it just sounds bad. It's like, ooh, slanderous. It's like, it sounds, ooh, slanderous. Evil, to speak evil of one another. It's to, it's to talk about someone in a way that is seeking to, to ruin their, their name and reputation. And even if it is true, for us as believers and how we should treat one another, this should not be something that we do. The Bible says that we're to handle those things personally, not get in a group and, and, and cover it with, well, we're gonna pray for this person because you know what they've done. We're not to speak evil of one another. And why? Well, what is the logic here? Well, notice the logic, look in verse 11 and 12. He says, if you speak evil of your brother, you become a judge of your brother. And if you are a judge of your brother, then you become a judge of the law. But the problem is that there is only one judge, right? Look at verse 12. He says, there is one lawgiver. There is only one who is perfect that is able to say, strange, that is able to say, do this or don't do that. And that, of course, is God. And so really the logic is this, that when we speak evil about a brother or sister in Christ to whom we're going to spend eternity with, God says, you are making yourself a judge over them. You see, right now you guys are sitting side by side, right? Shoulder to shoulder. But if you were to speak evil about someone in this room behind their back, or I mean, to their face, that's, that's in a slanderous way, not in an encouraging way. Right? The Bible says that we're to encourage one another to stay away from evil, but this is not what that's talking about. Then you, then you kind of are no longer to the side of them, but you put yourself above them like a judge. The problem with this is that God is our judge. Look at the last verse there in verse, or the last uh, sentence there in verse 12. He says, who are you to judge another? That's a pretty good question. The answer is obviously that, that you are no one to judge another's servant. You see, you and I don't have the proper authority and credentials to do that. It would kind of be like this. You know, it would be like me coming over to your house uh, for, for dinner tonight and telling you, hey, you need to go up to your room and you need to clean it. It's nasty. And uh, we'll see you after dinner. Imagine if your parents invited me over and then, I, and then I said that. Why can't I do that? I don't, it's not my house. It's not my house. You're not my kid. I don't have, now I have some authority in your life in the sense of spiritual authority within this room, but I don't have, like that, that's not my proper place, right? And so when we speak evil of one another, it's kind of like you're, you're stepping into a territory that's not yours. That's for God to deal with, Right? We are his children, we are not, uh, you know, and we are brothers and sisters. Now, this can happen, right? 
uh, even in a home with brothers and sisters, that, that the older sibling can begin acting like mom. And so oftentimes mom has to say like, hey, you're not their mom. Like you are, you are equivalent. You know, it kind of be like you going to work with your dad and going into your dad's boss's office and telling him, hey, you know Joe that works next to, uh, to uh, my dad? Yeah, he needs to go. Yeah, you have till tomorrow to fire him. You can't do that. Why? Because you have no authority in that place. You do not have the proper credentials to be able to make a statement like that. And in a similar way, when we begin to speak evil of our brothers and sisters in Christ, God says, that's not your place. That's not your place. You are not to act as a judge over them. Romans 14, verses 10 through 13, Paul would say something very similar here. He'd say, but why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. Notice verse 12. So then each of us shall give account to himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. Uh, in our brother's way. You see, we are to be side by side in relation to one another. Who, who are we to, to judge one another? Now, some people, again, will use this as, as it, you know, in, with someone coming up to them who's clearly in sin and it's another brother or sister and, and to say like, hey, you shouldn't be doing that. Oh, you can't judge me. That's not what this is talking about. This is the idea of talking evil about someone else, okay? And so, this is a clear just sin of commission. This is something that we are not to do. And so now we have knowledge of the law and we are to go and we are accountable to it, okay? Second sin that is mentioned here that we're gonna go over, uh, we're gonna jump verses 13 through 17. We'll go back to that uh, to end with that because that's our sin of omission. And so I wanna look at the two sins of commission and then we'll, we'll end with that, that last one. So we'll go through this quick. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but when we read that portion of scripture, when we got into chapter five, like things heated up. James got super intense. Like look at your Bibles and look in these first, these few verses um, of, of verses one through six. He says, he says, you need to weep and howl. Your riches are corruptive, corrupted. You've, uh, you, you know, these, it'll be a witness against you. will eat your flesh like fire. You have, you have frauded your brother. You have lived on the earth in pleasure. Like it gets very intense. You're like, whoa, James, like what's, what's going on? Well, we don't know what exactly was happening to the believers that he was writing to, but not only were there some that were speaking evil against one another. And so he says, Hey, stop. Like you're not to act as a judge over one another. There were also some that we're acting as a king over one another and an evil king. You know, it's been known throughout history for kings to acquire great wealth and power and abuse, and, uh, abuse that power by oppressing the, those that are lower than them, right? Rather than the, the king bringing up the people to a country of wealth, he keeps the people low that he might use what they can offer as a means for him to gain power. That's kind of what these believers were doing. Uh, we don't know all the details, but based upon these six verses that we just read, if you look at verse four, you get a pretty good indication of what were they doing? Like, why is James so mad? Why is he saying your riches are corrupted? And 
Well, look, look what they were doing. Verse four, indeed, the wages of the laborers, so those who worked for these who were in part of the church, they had money. He says, the laborers who mowed your fields, okay, so you have uh, people who are working in the fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reapers, the harvesters, the workers, have reached the ears of the Lord. So basically what was happening was these people with great wealth, rather than using what they had for the furtherance of the kingdom of God, they were using it to further their kingdom. They were using it to, to, they were actually taking these people who were like common day workers and not paying them what they owed. They were using what they could do. Essentially, have the picture in your head. They were standing on the shoulders of these who were not as wealthy as them to to, to boast themselves up, to exalt themselves to more power and more greed. Now, why were they doing this? Selfishness. They were acting as a king. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about money. I'm not sure if you know that. Jesus talked a lot about money. Proverbs talks a lot about money. Uh, Solomon uh, talks uh, quite a bit about money and his own struggle with that. Money is not a sin. You guys know this, right? right? You're like, I hope it's not a sin because I just bought something from the snack bar. Yeah, it's not a sin, okay? That's fine. But what's, what money and someone who has a lot of it, what that can often to, turn into is a great temptation for sin. You see, the Bible says it's not the love of money that is the root to all, kind, or to all evil, but it's the love of money that is the root to all kinds of evil. It's a root. It's, it's one of many. But it doesn't say money is the root. It says it's the love of money. And so I don't think anyone in here is in this great position of great wealth that you're going to begin to abuse workers under you. Like you guys don't even have jobs, okay? Now some of you are like, well, I, I, I have allowance. Yeah, some of you have jobs. Okay, you like mow your friend's yard and things like that. Um, but listen, none of you are in this place yet. However, there might be a day by your hard work and God's absolute blessing in your life that you that you come to a point, you're like, man, God's given me so much. You go of two ways. You will either use that money to build your kingdom or the kingdom of God. And so he's giving a very open rebuke to these people. And we must keep in mind that however God might bless you, maybe you have really big aspirations and you, and you want to make a lot of money. Right? Jesus said, he warned, he didn't warn poor people he warned rich people that it was harder to enter the kingdom of heaven than to go through, than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. The idea that money is not bad, but the temptation that can come along with that for selfishness. You know, it's interesting. Usually the most gr uh, greedy people have the most. There's, exactly, Jeff Bezos, there you go. There's people that's like, they, the more they get, the more they want. And if you ever look at, you know, it's really interesting. Uh, there's some interviews of different people that have wealth. That they, will, they will be able to, to attribute that, that same kind of thing. And so there's a temptation. Not that you shouldn't have wealth. It's not a bad thing, right? In the Bible, Abraham was a man who had 350 servants or people that worked in his household. He was like a Fortune 500 company just himself. He had wealth, but he used it not for the kingdom of self, but for the kingdom of God. And so that would be a sin of commission, right? To use your personal wealth to take advantage 
and fraud and oppress those who don't have as much as you. It is very common in our world, but should not be part of the believer's life. Okay, does that make sense? All right, so you can keep that one in your back pocket as you guys uh, uh, just live your life, okay? So the last one uh, is acting as a God. Now, this would be the, the sin of omission. Okay, this would be not doing what is right. And it's going to make sense in a moment, right? We're not to act as a judge, act as a king, and we are not to act as a God. Verse 13, look in your Bibles. We'll read it once more. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Now, we went a little out of order from how James lays it out. But I wanted to break it up in this way and kind of save this section for last because I think this section is extremely applicable for you and I as a ministry. And unlike the other two clear sins of commission, right, taking advantage of people for money and speaking evil about, like, I don't think there's anyone that would debate, like, I don't know how wrong that is. It's pretty clear. Sins of commission. It's wrong. This last one is not as obvious could be easily overlooked. And so let's, let's dive in. What, what is he talking about here? We'll, we'll first look at verse 13 and look at the audience that, he, that he's talking to. He says in verse 13, come now. He says, hey, come and look. I want to talk to those who do this, who have this type, type of mentality and attitude in life. He says, come now. You say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. So James is giving an example. He's saying those who would say, I'm going to make these plans, and this is what we're going to do, and it's going to happen. Now, you might look and be like, oh, well, I'm not a businessman, and I'm not, I don't plan to go to any cities this year. Uh, we plan to go camping for vacation, not to go and make a business profit. It is addressing the audience is someone who would make a plan with their life without the Lord involved. Okay. That's the audience is to make a plan without God's influence. If you're taking notes, the audience is those who would say, man, I'm going to go to this high school and, and I'm going to make it on the football team. And then I'm going to go to this college when I get older, and I'm going to spend four years there. Then I'm going to go to this grad school, get my master's. I'm going to get this job. I'm going to buy this house. I'm going to live in this area. I'm going to have this family. Now, those, none of those things I just mentioned are bad plans. But to make them without the Lord involved would be a sin of omission for the child of God. Right For you personally, you are a follower of Jesus. And so to follow your own plan without following the Lord's plan for your life is not inherently, this is wrong. 
but it's not doing what you know you should. You know that you should say, God, what do you want me to do, right? Like what Paul said on the road to Damascus to the Lord, what do you want me to do? That should be how we live our life. And so he, he addresses those who would plan their life call themselves believers with no influence of God. Does that make sense? So that's the audience. And then he gives some logic. He says, this doesn't make sense to live like this. Why? Well, because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. He says, your life is but a vapor. It's there and then it's gone. He says, the the logic is this, that you have an unknown short life. And you might make plans and that's a good thing, but you make it without the Lord. But the problem is that you're not God. And so you don't know what will happen tomorrow. And we aren't to act as gods of our life. Why? Because we gave our life to the God. And so our life is his life. And so when we begin making plans for our lives without asking God, what do you want me to do? Without saying what we're about to, the instruction that we're about to be given, then we sin by omission, by omitting God from our life. And the reality is, is you just don't know what's going to happen. The Bible describes that our life is like a hand breath. Hand breath is an ancient uh, measurement device that they would do with their hands. Everyone put their hands up like this. A hand breath is from uh, the, right, they didn't have rulers or like tape measures back then. So they'd be like, oh, that's like 10 hand breaths. It would be from the, your Thumb, there you go, to your pinky finger, pinky finger. And that would be, that would be a hand breath. And the Bible says that your life is like a hand breath. It's just, it's small. It's like a vapor. It's there and then it's gone. And so to make plans without the Lord is a foolish thing. And it's not only a foolish thing, it's a sinful thing. And so then what do we do? What's the instruction? Well, the instruction is clearly given in verse 15. He says, instead right? Contrary to. You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. It's a rather simple thing. James isn't saying, stop making plans. He just says, in your plan making, which God gave you the ability to make plans, and the Bible says you are to make plans, that we bring it under the conditional will of God. Meaning we say, God, I know you've given me a brain, you've given me breath in my lungs, you've given me life, and so I want to live it. And God, I, I, I know that you've given me a personality, and this is what I like. I think I want to do this, and I want to go here, but God, whatever you want, right? This is, what Je- this is how Jesus lived his life. He said, not my will, but yours be done. He said, God, I like this. This, is, this would be good, right? He said to his father, if this cup could pass from me, I'd kind of prefer that, but not my will, but yours be done. We should live our life like that. God, I have these plans, but God, would you direct my steps if the Lord wills? This is how Paul lived his life, right? Acts 18, 21, 1 Corinthians 4, 19, and 1 Corinthians 16, 7 are just some of the examples of terms that Paul would say. This was his type of verbiage and his way of speaking. He would often add things like, well, I want to come to you, God willing, if the Lord permits, if God wants That should be, for you and I as Christians, a part of our language. We might not think of it because it isn't obviously sinful, and that is why 
we need to think of it. You see, to live your life without the added, if the Lord wills, is to sin. Because why? Those without God live their life with no thought of God. But you and I, we know better, right? We've been redeemed. We've been adopted into the family of God. See, someone who does not have a personal relationship with God, they don't need to check in with anyone regarding their plans. They just do what they want. For you and I, we have a heavenly father. We have a king that we know that we're accountable to. And God has given us instructions. God's given us his Holy Spirit. And for us to live our life without saying, if the Lord wills, is to live a life of an unbeliever. But you and I know better. And so it's a rebuke, but it's also this encouragement that James gives. The, the fact is that God is, is sovereign. Have you guys ever heard that term before? God is sovereign. Everyone say the word sovereign. It is the word that God is in control. He knows the end from the beginning. So even though the the end hasn't happened yet, he knows it. And he knew it from before it started. God is outside of time, but he works in time. And so for you and I, as we make our plans, and as some of you eighth graders go to high school, and you're going to start getting that question of of what do you want to do when you get older and and start making these plans, and that's great. But always have that condition of, yeah, I want to do this, but you know, if, if the Lord wills that to be done. Because I know God's in control of everything. This is his story, and we're just a part of it. And so whatever God wants in my life, like that's what I'm going to do. Here are my plans. And it will happen if the Lord wills. It is a statement of dependence. It's a statement of reliance. And it's how you and I should do everything. Now, we don't have to get crazy about this. But it should be this attitude, right? It's not like, oh, if someone asks you, hey, what are your plans uh, after church? Oh, we're going to go to In-N-Out. Well, only if the Lord wills you to go to In-N-Out will you go there. You don't got to get crazy. But it's that type of attitude that we are to live with. Because at the end of the day, it's like, yeah, only if the Lord, like your parents might plan. But within the sovereign plan of God where he allows both good and bad things to happen, you might not make it to In-N-Out. The rapture might happen before then, and we're going to have the best in and out of our lives in heaven together. But to live with that mindset is to live for the Lord. Let's pray. God in heaven, we, we are grateful that you are so actively involved in our life. Lord, that you don't tell us to just make our own plans and you'll see us in heaven, that you walk with us every step of the way, that your Holy Spirit is described as our helper the one to come alongside, the, the parakletos, the one who is next to us wanting to do life together. Father, would we, would we live in your will? There might be many of us today that would say that there's no consistent sins of commission in our life, meaning uh, we're, we're not, we could say we're not doing anything wrong. But you have so much more for us than just not doing wrong. You have good for us that you desire us to walk in, to live in. You have plans and and works for us in our life. And we don't want to just we don't want to just get to heaven saying, oh well, we didn't do anything wrong. Well, we want to get to heaven with the stories of what you did in and through our lives that were submitted to you. We want to have that testimony to realize 
when we're in heaven that there's nothing we could have done. That all that God did through our life was his idea, his will. He used our personality. He used our plans. But that you would get all the credit. You'd get all the glory. And so we love you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said...